Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I am doing okay. It is a Friday night. I am giving up my weekend so that the masses may be satisfied with our podcast sacrifice. I'm doing this from London and I'm still dealing with jet lag. So it's both of us making the sacrifices right now. That's right. We just want to reclaim the powering through, uh, the powering through crown. Speaking of the crown. So this week, I thought we would talk about a subject that is near and dear to our hearts, something we haven't talked about. And it's really been too long, James. And that is Facebook. Oh, I was going to ask you, what could that possibly be? But I guess that makes sense. (laughs) Well, so it kind of turned into a Facebook week on trajectory. And actually, it's continued since then. So just a quick rundown on the week. On Monday, or over the weekend, I should say, the New York Times ran a big article about child sexual abuse material, which I wrote about on Monday. And frankly, this is one where... What I wrote, I was actually kind of almost surprised myself in some respects, but it's a position I've been sort of coming to over time. So I'd kind of love to hash it out with you. Tuesday wrote about Oculus and comparing and contrasting it to Amazon's Echo launches. Then the next day, there was this leaked Q&A period with Mark Zuckerberg. Casey Newton, who broke the story, observed in his newsletter today that some bloggers were out there saying, oh, there's nothing interesting here, and then writing 2,000 words about it. I have no idea who he was talking about. And then actually, as we podcast, we are a day late, but it actually works out. There is this letter from the US, UK, and Australia asking Facebook to not implement sort of the end-to-end encryption. So it's a whole bunch of mishmash of stuff, but I think there is sort of more of a thread and connection here than maybe it first appears. Yes, I think you might be right. And I think it's worth diving into. So let's do it. So one of the articles that I really link to almost more than anything else on Stratechery is it's kind of a random sort of aside. It's called Friction. This is back in 2013. And basically, the point of this article was saying it's something we've talked about before, where the dynamics of the internet are sort of an amoral force. Like it's not that they're necessarily good, it's not that they're necessarily bad. It's that what they are is a reduction in friction. It's that stuff happens, stuff goes along much easier, much faster, much further than ever before in a way that's really fundamentally different than it is in sort of the analog world. The sort of economic implication of this is the zero marginal cost and zero transaction cost sort of stuff that we've talked about. And you know, there's no more geographic barriers, all those sorts of things. But this fact that there's no more friction, that's both a hugely positive thing, but it's also a hugely negative thing. And it's like the friction itself, the lack of friction, I should say, is not inherently good. It's not inherently bad. And we need to be super aware of that amorality, lest in our pursuit of sort of like the upside that we can see, we fail to sort of prevent and pay attention to all the downside stuff. I 100% agree. Technology inherently is amoral, and it's almost like a truism to state that. But when you ground it in this notion of friction and what the ramifications of the removal of friction are, it brings that notion of the amorality of technology much more to life. And in the context of collection of data, you think about like the equivalent example that also brought it to life for me was East Germany and the Stasi and how so much effort had to be put in because the default was whatever data existed in the world would just disappear into the ether. The effort they had to put in to track everything to find out what people were doing versus how in the world of technology, the default is switched to it's so cheap and easy to record everything and how that unlocks, again, depending on how you use it, but that could unlock a degree of watching people hitherto unimagined. 
Right. But there's upsides too. I mean, we just talked about the fact you're in London. I'm in Taipei. We're recording this podcast that is going to be edited by someone in South Africa. It's going to be posted on a server in the United States and be listened to by people all over the world. And obviously, strategy and his business and the tremendous amount of knowledge, the fact that you can learn and find out about anything. The upside, so lots of people that would have never sort of escaped out of their sort of backgrounds. And obviously, this is something that resonates very strongly with me, both being someone that sort of came from a place that was quite poor. Like I didn't even apply to good schools because it didn't even occur to me to do so to today where I can sit in Taiwan and email people all over the world every morning. It's incredible. And so it's very easy for me, for sure, on a personal level to fall in love with this lack of friction. But one area that I thought about and is you know relevant to you was this debate around 8chan and that sort of thing about the fact that to build a community, the word community is also an amoral term, right? I've built a community at Stratechery. There's arguably an exponent community. There's all kinds of communities. Turns out there's also communities around white nationalism, for example, and other sort of terrible ideologies. The episode, it was before the break, the episode where, again, this came home to me was when you thought about the guy standing on the random street corner holding the sign and all the people walking past him thinking that guy is a crackpot. And yet, again, the removal of friction has enabled all those folks to find each other and build a community. And again, for whatever reason, the start of this episode, I feel like I've been Debbie Downer on this removal of friction. But again, I 100% agree with you. There's many upsides to it as well. Well, and to this point around these communities, you know, in the analog world, like we, again, I talked this lots from a business perspective, like the publishing industry, for example, the fact that you had to actually get a paper out the door and distribute it to people meant that those that own the printing presses and own the delivery trucks are the ones that made all the money, right? Because there was a physicality to business, to everything in the previous world. And that physicality extended to belief systems that were out of the ordinary, right? And again, out of the ordinary can be a good or a bad thing. I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin. No one around me cared about technology. No one knew anything. The fact that we got the internet when I was in eighth grade or something like that, and I could go online and start learning and reading about all this sort of stuff. And really, that's when Shotekri began in many respects, because I was just devouring everything that I could about this stuff and how it all worked. That's an incredible example of me, someone whose values and belief systems didn't really fit in with the world around me. I was able to go online and find out there's this whole world out there, and it was a great thing. And I'd like to think it was a great thing, not just for me personally, but hopefully for everyone listening to this podcast. It had some sort of positive impact for them as well. Yeah. The number of vectors for which this is true is crazy. I mean, I can relate to a lot of that being a kid in Australia, but again, I've mentioned this previously on the podcast, like the process of struggling with my sexuality and coming out and being able to find a community, like being able to plug into people along so many different vectors and people who are struggling with all kinds of things, the, the ability to virtualize different attributes and find your community based on those attributes, whether it's an interest or whether it's a characteristic or whatever it is, it's an incredibly powerful thing. The problem, though, is that that sort of ability to find community, again, it's amoral. You could have a tendency towards white nationalism or terrorism or a, you call it the same thing or whatever you want to do. Or in the case of this article in the New York Times for the weekend, have child pornography. And now suddenly you're not the weirdo. You're not just isolated by yourself and sort of those mores of society, those taboos, and just sort of the physical 
inability to run into people that are the same as you, friction can be very, very useful and a very, very good thing in sort of keeping society in order, keeping us on that line between man and beast that we don't tip over because all society is kind of holding us in place. But then you go online and you find people, not that many people, but you find the ones that believe the same as you do. And now you feel validated. You feel like, oh, I'm not the only one. Oh, maybe this isn't so weird. You start justifying it to each other. You start hyping each other up. It is building community. And suddenly we have a major, major problem on our hands, broadly speaking. The point around not just finding the community, but I mean, social mores exist within the context of a community. And traditionally, a lot of those communities have been geographically constrained. And this notion that you can recreate a community in a virtual sense, and then the social mores start to change as a result of you immersing yourself in that community and the friction going away. And when you have all these people around you that are just like you, that it almost encourages encourages it to push to its logical extension is both a powerful but also a somewhat terrifying thought when viewed through the context of topics just like what we're talking about. It makes it much clearer to me how, for example, people get radicalized or how the child sexual abuse is exploded online because you're surrounded by people and it begins to normalize it or even encourage the behavior. Yes, and we have encountered a UK versus US English word. I say mores. Um, <laughs> what's I'm the, on what's the other the, side what, of the pond right now. Yeah, what's the more on pronouncing more? But no, it's exactly right. And, you know, this is a startling change. And I think particularly in the West, it's easy to sort of not see this coming, to sort of miss it, in part because the tendency towards individualism and the valuing of the individual, which, to be clear, is a good thing. I am unabashedly a you know, Western small liberal believing in individual, that's actually why you care about human rights. That's why you care about someone who you've never even met because you value them by simple fact that they are human. But the problem is, is that in that sense, if you start from the individual, it's the tendency is to view the sort of trappings of society that limit the individual as implicitly bad things by definition, because you are sort of pro-individual. And the reality is, again, it's we're getting closer to morality here, but what I mean is it plays in both directions, right? Yes, it's a problem when the better angels of our nature or whatever are held down, or you know, the talented are not discovered, or people who have a different sexuality or a different view of themselves or a different understanding of their place in the world are sort of shoved into a box or may stand in line and, you know, unable to express themselves and far worse. At the same time, those structures also serve to sort of keep genuinely bad things in line as well. Again, it's so easy to just get stuck on one side or the other, good or bad. And as with so many things, it's both. Yeah, especially in the framing of people now wishing to go back to the good old days. You know, the Me Too thing, for example, like the movement that's emerged around that and all this horrendous stuff on the treatment of women that historically men in power were able to perpetrate simply because they were the gatekeepers and they had so much power, they were effectively unchecked. I mean, there are positives and negatives. Like it wasn't so great in the past. There were some horrible things as well. And it's not great now. Both sides, like it's this amorality. There are pros and cons to both. 
And this gets this issue of child sexual abuse material online. And the New York Times story was very tragic. It interspersed these awful anecdotes with sort of discussions about what's happening in tech and particularly the sort of real failures, I think, on sort of the government side. I mean, Congress passed this law to deal with some of this and then has underfunded the agency and there's been no real attention paid to it. And meanwhile, these reports are stacking up. And it's one of those things where I think it was a little unfair to tech broadly and really Facebook in particular in that it was implied because the vast majority of these reports, the number of reports have skyrocketed and the vast majority of the reports are coming from Facebook. And I saw a lot of stuff online, which was, oh, look at Facebook. You know, Facebook is basically responsible for all evil in the world. And taking the implication of that being that Facebook is the sort of progenitor and the cause of the rise of child sexual abuse online. And actually, I think that gets it wrong. I think the reality is, is this filth is everywhere. It's actually probably less on Facebook than other places. But Facebook has actually built out the apparatus to find and discover this and report it. You know, child sexual abuse material has always been in a special sort of case as far as protections go. Basically, it has none. It, like Facebook is expected to, and we want them to be going through all content, be screening everything, looking for this sort of stuff. And they've invested a lot of money and put in a lot of effort to build this out in this reporting mechanism. And what's the net result? The number of reports has skyrocketed. A huge number of them are Facebook. And <laughs> It's kind of unfair to Facebook. The story is, look at Facebook causing all this child sexual abuse material online. Right. I mean, this is one of these toxic topics that you just don't want to be associated with for exactly this reason, because it's so horrific to so many people that the moment that this comes up and is associated with you, it's completely damning. I think you're 100% right. This shouldn't be something that Facebook should be criticized for. No, it's something that everyone else should be criticized for. Why aren't you finding as much stuff as Facebook is? Correct. I mean, notwithstanding the commentary we just had on community and the creation of these communities and their own morays such that it might be encouraging more of this behavior than was previously there, that's not alone to Facebook. That's everything on the internet. The only difference is Facebook is digging it up. And so, just like with Me Too, where these things were happening, they just weren't being reported, it sounds like Facebook has actually managed to uncover a lot of this and is reporting it. And rather than being criticized for it, they should be commended for it. Well, don't worry. We have plenty to criticize for. And I think one is connected to that. And this ties into the letter that those three countries sent Facebook is what's going to happen once Facebook does encrypt by default all these conversations. A lot of this is happening on Messenger. Messenger is, as I understand it, the big conduit and where a lot of these reports are coming from. You get these groups that form on there. And once that's encrypted, then what happens? The New York Times article noted that WhatsApp has a fraction, an infinitesimal fraction of the reports that Messenger does. And what's the big difference between the two? WhatsApp is encrypted end to end. Facebook can't look into the content. What is there? And I think it's a valid concern. And this surprises me because, you know, I've always been gung ho on the encrypt everything sort of bandwagon, but I remain a strong proponent of encryption. I remain a strong opponent of backdoors because a backdoor is basically defeating the whole thing and keys leak and it is going to happen. And it's not good. So encryption is going to be out there at the same time. Defaults matter right? Do we want the default to be for anyone, the biggest moron on the internet, that they don't have to do anything 
and everything is going to be unacceptable and unsearchable. I mean, again, to be clear, right now, your conversation between you and Facebook is encrypted, right? Where it's decrypted is once it's sitting on the servers and then it's re-encrypted to go back to you. What we're talking about is end-to-end encryption, where it's never decrypted anywhere in the chain and it's always visible to Facebook. And I respect, and I'm not going to argue, I'm actually curious your position on this, James, but I'm not going to argue with you if you say, no, end-to-end encryption is the right answer. But I think it's not nearly as sort of black and white as I myself really thought it was maybe a couple of years ago. I agree. I am quite conflicted about this because like, I've always been a big proponent of the way that Apple, for example, with iMessage, there's end-to-end encryption there. I think that's a great thing. I think two things. One is you have to look at the intent behind why the company is doing it. And I am not entirely convinced that one day Mark Zuckerberg woke up and felt like privacy was something that was super important. For all the reasons we've discussed over the years, like any company that was willing to give away the data of not just the people signing up for apps, but the friends of the people signing up for apps, which led to things like Cambridge Analytica. And who knows how many versions of our profiles are floating around in archives all over the place. Like That does not feel to me like a position consistent with a company or an individual who deeply cares about privacy. I think the other thing is, as I approach this topic, when it comes to services that are incentivized to drive usage in the same way that Facebook is, I think versus iMessage or Apple, where it's like we sell you the device. I think there's something about where usage is involved and encrypting the messages. Hmm. Do you see what I'm getting at here? Like time. Yeah, no, I I like it. I, I do get what you're saying. I actually think both the points were pretty well made. The point about the company motivation, I mean, it is. Astonishingly simple. In this case, I just defended Facebook, so I like to think I'm pretty even-handed here. It's pretty easy to take a very cynical look at this entire privacy end-to-end encryption thing. I mean, I already wrote a cynical article about it saying, look, Facebook's not committing to changing anything with their core business. And anyway, the contents of messages aren't particularly useful information anyway. I mean, the metadata is probably more useful and whatnot. So I'm sort of not convinced about the whole thing anyway. You get a great press cycle out of it, and there is going to be a lot of work for it. Oh, And by the way, if you can't look at all the content of messages, that's an awful lot of expense and an awful lot of effort that you no longer need to engage in. I mean, it sounds like a long-term money saver to me. I mean, yes, it's a lot of CapEx to do it, but you're reducing OpEx in the long run. So it's quite easy to be cynical. Yes. But your other point about the nature of the companies and the nature of engagement, I think that's the key one. I think that that's exactly right. I mean, I understand the sort of law enforcement frustration about iMessages, for example, or about WhatsApp. I guess Messenger is the one that really sort of, you know, it's built off of Facebook. Like Facebook likes to pretend it's this magical messaging app that just sort of appeared out of nowhere. And no, like it was literally a part of Facebook and then they tore it out, but it's still deeply connected. And it's connected to this product that you're right is all about driving engagement. It's less about a one-to-one platform. It's always been more of a broadcasting platform. Facebook's big push is into groups. Like they want to get you finding your tribe, finding the people that feel the same as you. And what I'm concerned about is, The criminals, the bad guys are going to always have encryption, right? It's always going to be an issue. And 
it's just a trade-off that we need to make that I don't think we should have backdoors, and we need to accept the fact that it is a big problem. At the same time, again, this is a default question. That's someone who is on that line, who's on the verge of tipping to the bad side. Do we want it to make it easy for them, or is it better that they have to actually go through some effort? They have to actually go through and figure out, oh, I have to download a different app, and I need to figure out how to do encryption, and I need to disguise where I am. Like The harder we make it, I just feel like the better it is, and I don't know. Like Again, by my Mine's kind of exploding because this is a definite shift in the way I've sort of viewed this question. But I just think friction can be actually a very useful thing. And do we really want to remove all friction in this case when it comes to encryption? I'm I'm not sure. And like I feel <laughs> nervous saying this because I'm like, Ben from three years ago is just, you know, <laughs> loading up to go after me. Yeah, 100%. And I struggle with it for the same reasons you've just described, but like the context of it matters and the default state matters. Like somehow I find it much less offensive that attorney generals from countries like Australia, the UK and the US are asking for an omission of an act versus adding a backdoor into encryption. And I mean, somehow it feels much less offensive. It feels much more okay. Okay. This business has established and built a platform and it's done it in this way. We're requesting you not to implement this. That feels a lot less offensive to me than, oh, you've built a platform out that has end-to-end encryption because that's part of what matters to you. That's part of the value proposition. We want you to add in a backdoor. And like once you've requested adding in a backdoor to one encrypted messaging platform, you can kind of insist on backdoors being added to all of them. And then encryption as a general thing fails. So I don't know. There's just, again, I just want to double down on that. It is a different thing. I've seen a lot of people comparing this letter to, oh, it's Apple versus the FBI all over again. It's not. It's a fundamentally different proposition. Now, now you can fall on the same side of both them and say in both cases, the government is wrong. Like it, it's a totally legitimate thing to argue, but from a like technical, you know, it's just totally different. It's breaking encryption versus to your point, adding in the first place. And again, just to be clear, your messages are encrypted. When they go from your phone to Facebook servers, people can't snoop on them. It's on Facebook servers, then they're decrypted. And so they rest decrypted, or I'm sure they're encrypted, but at some point they're decrypted. And then they go back down to your phone. It's encrypted in passage. The question is end to end. Is there any sort of point at which it's possible to view in on these things? And again, neither of us are advocating for backdoors. We're not advocating that there shouldn't be encryption. I just think we need to maybe think a little bit, is a little bit of friction in this case, something that that is useful. Yeah. It actually makes me positive that we've found an area of this where we're both a little uncomfortable. I mean, again, one of the things that's happened for me over the past however many years we've been chatting is anytime I'm gung-ho and this is 100% the right thing and there's not a little bit of concern or like internal conflict around a topic. I'm like, are we treating it with the nuance that it deserves? And it's interesting to find it here around encryption. That being said, if you believe that Facebook's doing this for cynical reasons, I don't know necessarily that appeals from the attorney generals of these governments is going to make them be any less cynical in terms of how they approach it. Well, true. But I think just to add to your point, almost all this stuff is almost always a trade-off. And to your point, if you're gung-ho and you think absolutely you should do this, almost by definition, you have not fully thought through the problem. And if you are uncomfortable, I do think that's a fair point of judgment. There's two types of discomfort. There's the discomfort of, 
I don't know everything here, but there's also this comfort of I've actually thought a lot about this and I can argue both sides and I'm going to make a value judgment because I think it's 55, 45 or 51, 49, even it's certainly not 100 to zero. And again, I can totally understand someone listening to this and completely disagreeing with us and coming down the other side. But if you're disagreeing with us from a 100 to zero perspective and can't even fathom the possibility of what we're talking about, then I think that there's maybe a little more thought that might be useful in addressing this or any other question. I agree. Anyhow, (laughs) there's only one of many things that happened with Facebook this week. So I kind of wanted to switch gears a little bit, still talking about Facebook. And I kind of wanted to refine, I wasn't thrilled with my article this week, to be honest. It kind of came out late. I was just working on it a lot, which is it's kind of the opposite of what you just said. If I'm spending too much time on something, maybe it's I haven't gotten clearly enough. But I've been a consistent critic of Facebook and Oculus. And I think people get a little frustrated because they believe in VR. And I'm actually not necessarily being a critic of VR. I am actually fair, somewhat critical of VR. I always think that VR and AR, they're technically similar, but the implications and potential use cases are totally different. And the reason is, I think we've discussed in the podcast, but I view there's two roads of technology. There's the immersive road. And think about like back in the day movies, think about like TV, think about video games where you go somewhere and you enter sort of a new world. And that's been one route. And a lot of the technological advances happen there because there's more of a search desire for realism. There's more of a willingness to spend. And so you see, for example, like graphics coming to video games very early and you know, just as an example. The other one is where the technology goes along with you. It's an accompaniment to you. And this is, you know, sort of the desktop computers going to laptop computers or even desktops in the first place, not no longer be, be being in the server room or the mainframe and then to your phone and then to your watch. Like, and it's something where the technology is with you all the time in the real world. So one, you're like going into the technology and one, the technology is sort of accompanying you in your day-to-day life. And it's that second one that I've always viewed as being more impactful and more powerful. And, you know, for obvious reasons, just because it basically entails all of the time that's not in the immersive time, right? The immersive time is a dedicated, you can't do anything else. You have to be very focused. The other ones, you can be passive. It can be in the background. It's just there. And to me, VR is by definition in the immersive sort of road and AR again, sort of by definition, is in the accompaniment road, which makes them, again, similar technologically, but very, very different from a sort of product marketing perspective. Yeah, I think the framing is fantastic. And it's such an interesting overlay over the main tech companies. Like you think about the big ones, Google, Facebook, Apple, and Amazon. And it's interesting because I think whereas Apple, Amazon, and Google Uh, more in terms of the belief around augmenting the existing world. Facebook feels like it has a very different set of beliefs. It's like, I think it comes from Zuckerberg. Like this whole focus on VR to me of Facebook definitely feels like it's coming from the same mind of someone that would come up with the idea of digitizing people's characteristics and putting them online. And it's like, I don't know, it feels like there's a deep, dissatisfaction with the way the world is and we'll provide an alternative reality. Like, let's not deal with the messiness of the real world. Come into this beautiful world that's very different from the real world and spend time there. 
It also probably relates to the engagement, whereas the other companies are less focused on engagement and Google's obvious exception is YouTube. Facebook's very focused on engagement and these immersive technologies are all about engagement. They're like, you're going to do this and you're going to do nothing else at the same time. Your point about the mindset is spot on. I'm going to read this quote from Zuckerberg. It is at the Oculus Developer Conference in 2016. It was a month before the election. I think it's going to blow your mind. All right. Quote, we're here to make virtual reality the next major computing platform. At Facebook, this is something we're really committed to. You know, I'm an engineer, and I think a key part of the engineering mindset is this hope and this belief that you can take any system that's out there and make it much, much better than it is today. Anything, whether it's hardware or software, a company, a developer ecosystem, you can take anything and make it much, much better. And as I look out today, I see a lot of people who share this engineering mindset, and we all know where we want to improve and where we want virtual reality to eventually get. This is a a mindset, I think, that it assumes that technology is good. It assumes that we just need to build it and good things are going to happen. There's very little sense of doubt and sort of worry is that, is this the right thing to do? And we are certainly no Luddites at all. And, you know, my general view of a lot of this stuff is a lot of it's sort of inevitable and we need to figure out how to manage and deal with it. I'm not arguing we need to go backwards, but we need a lot more sort of thinking about questioning, not having the assumption that just because we build it, it is going to be better. Yeah. And I feel like that skepticism is just sorely lacking there. I mean, the irony of the whole thing is I watched parts of the keynote and there was a gentleman demoing some of the very cool stuff that they've built. I actually worry that Facebook, by taking this approach, is going to set VR back because they're thinking about it as the next computing platform, as opposed to like there were technology demos around, it was almost like video conferencing, but where the mask would track your facial features to an extent that was just crazy. And they also demoed another technology where I don't know how they were mapping the room, but basically they provided these incredibly detailed views of what a room was like and you could almost walk through it and move around it. The level of realism was incredible. The problem is if this is deployed as a generalized platform as opposed to recognizing that this technology could actually be used in some very, very cool B2B ways, like people fly across the world to meet with each other in order to get some of these small, body language cues in order to build trust, you could do that incredibly well with this technology. And similarly, the applications in the B2B world for some of that room mapping is incredible, but they're pulling in all these engineers to work on it. And there's almost like a, I mean, you wrote about it so well on Tuesday that the way that they're approaching the go-to-market, it feels like it's being driven by dogmatism and this belief around improving the world. And we're going to provide this platform. We're not going to be subject to Apple and Google owning platforms anymore. We're going to take it out into the world and we're going to own this next big thing as a opposed to recognizing that perhaps the way this technology could best be used is in some very different way, and that's how we're going to apply it. Yeah, and I think just to go back to something you said a little bit earlier, you talked about how you viewed sort of most of the big tech companies as being in the real world and Facebook having this sort of bias towards the immersive world. And I think it's really interesting. I would have initially said that no, Facebook is, you know, they're successful because they're in the real world, but you're right. What made Facebook so powerful in such a machine, particularly from a sort of business perspective, is that thanks to mobile, they were able to introduce immersion everywhere, 
right? And so we talk about, oh, you're at the bus stop and you're flipping through your feed. What are you doing? You are for a moment in your head, leaving the bus stop and going into your feed, going into this other world, this other place. And we've seen other situations where if you are able to sort of bridge these sorts of divides, you become a very, very powerful and very, very sort of rich company. I think the classic example is Microsoft, where Microsoft was both horizontal and vertical, right? Usually that's a trade-off, but they were able to sort of pull both off and become very powerful. And in this case, it's a different sort of thing, but where Facebook was able to be immersive everywhere in the real world. And what's so interesting about this is I keep saying this and I've written it a million times, like mobile save Facebook because Facebook had this whole thing. They wanted to be a platform, want to be a platform, want to be a platform. And they were focused on the PC and, you know, they had this gaming thing going on. Oh, yeah, we're going to be a platform. We're going to come and make them use our own currency. And it's just this big mess. Nothing was going on. The company wasn't growing. The IPO'd and the stock was way down. And what happened was mobile came along and you had this small screen and and you couldn't afford to be a platform. There wasn't room to be a platform. There was only a screen. Your API access was limited. You were in a sandbox. And so what did they do? They focused on Facebook content and then putting ads in it. And it was a phenomenal business, a business that still drives the company today. But you see this with this whole Oculus thing. It's all, we need to be a platform. We need to own the next platform. And it's like, did you learn nothing? Not being a platform was the best thing that happened to you. I mean, sorry, I'm a little bit of a rant here, but it, like, it continues to blow my mind. If I was a Facebook shareholder, not that you have any control, but I'd be pulling my hair out. Facebook's power in the market right now, even as sort of if use of Facebook declines, or they still have Instagram, whatever. It's the underlying advertising that ties it all together, right? It's that all the data is connected. They can pull in lots of things. They can serve you targeted ads at different places. Everything feeds into each other. That's what makes this company powerful. Oculus has absolutely nothing to do with any of that. It's a different business model. It doesn't use the same data layer. It uses all sorts of different things. Oh, and by the way, all the sort of bad reputation Facebook gets because of their business model is just going to make Oculus harder to sell in the first place. So what are we doing here? And meanwhile, you have TikTok coming along, hoovering up tons and tons of attention, tons and tons of time. And Mark Zuckerberg is watching cryptocurrencies and trying to bring virtual reality to market, adding encryption to their apps when no one is particularly asking for it. And like, what's going on? Like, I feel like he's dropping the ball completely here. Yeah. I mean, it, it, sorry, I haven't had a good rant for a while. No, I, I, I enjoyed it. I tend to agree. The crazy thing is, I mean, set aside for a moment, set aside the societal implications, all sorts of stuff from a pure business perspective. I don't know what on earth Mark Zuckerberg is doing. Oculus does not fit the business. Again, this is not to say that virtual reality is not a good idea. In fact, it's not even to say that Oculus is going to fail. I agree that actually Facebook owning it makes it more likely to fail, but perhaps they will succeed. But all this sort of stuff is an opportunity cost, right? And when you think about how do you allocate resources, how do you allocate capital? And to me, this is a terrible allocation of capital on Facebook's part. Someone else should be building virtual reality with the proper business model to fit, the proper reputation to fit, the proper go-to-market to fit. And Facebook should be augmenting and building on their biggest advantage, which is digital advertising and the whole infrastructure that goes with that and fending off these threats. Like I was just digging up that quote earlier about the Oculus thing. There's another quote around Oculus where I don't have it in front of me, but Zuckerberg is to the extent like, you know, there's still stuff to do in social networking, but we think we've pretty much solved it. So it's 
it's time to sort of look ahead. Like, I'm not joking. And this was three or four years ago. And obviously, there was a lot to do with social networking. And there was just a lot to do with the networks they had. There's social networking coming along all the time. And again, you can see it on the side and say, oh, that's good. I'm glad Facebook has their eyes off the ball. I'm not making an argument this is good or bad. This is me, Ben Thompson, business analyst, analyzing the business. And I have no idea what the CEO is doing. Yeah. Okay. So I will make an argument that TikTok taking over is bad simply because that thing lives in China and the idea right, that- No, 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 no. That, that, that's, that's a good one. Let's say that for like five minutes. Yeah. I don't want to talk about that now. I feel like that topic and China again is something we should revisit in the future. So let's leave that aside. I think what this conversation is reminding me of is that Facebook has two things going for it. And that is Zuckerberg- his view of the world, he has these deep insights where he is incredibly right 20% of the time. And the rest of the time, his view of human nature is completely warped. And the insights around digitizing human relationships is one of them. But like you see it keep coming out in this immersive world and this engineering belief. The associated weakness with that is he's just very poor at strategy. Facebook has these incredible deep insights and this incredible ability to execute, but their strategy on so many fronts, it's not determined by a pragmatism around where they are in the market. It's determined by this mindset of like, this is how I think about the world. This is where I want to improve. This is this insight I have about human nature and I'm going to go all in. And he got it right when it came to digitizing human relationships. He got it very wrong around platform. The thing is, some of the insights I agree with, like in the most recent developer conference, he talks about it's crazy how the phones are organized around apps and not something else. And it's like, well, on some level, I agree. Like The reason primarily I use my phone is to contact people. And the fact that we don't have a phone that's arranged in that way or that it's arranged around jobs to be done as opposed to pushing tiles. Thank you. I think I was going to jump in on that because apps is weird, but also like the people thing's weird because we do other stuff too. Jobs to be done. That's exact framing. Right. But the thing that's missing is he He's just not positioned to do that. Like they don't own the platform right now. And then creating VR in order to enable that is just, you are detached from reality if you think that's how you're going to solve these set of problems. Like we've talked about how Google's incredibly well positioned because of their AI to be able to do the jobs to be done where you could conceivably speak to the device and tell it in natural language, oh, can you get a car to pick me up and take me home? I'll be ready in five minutes. And like you could see Google being well positioned to do that or Apple owning the phone platform and figuring out a new interface where it's arranged around- And going to AR and going, right. going to augmented yes. reality. Like It's a natural next step. It totally is. And the thing about it is that these guys are strategically incredibly Unsound. And it's because they're so good at executing, it's easy to miss. And like the execution comes out when you see the way that when they get their act together, they see, oh, Snapchat's a threat. Let's introduce the equivalent of stories into Instagram and just ruthlessly copy and ruthlessly execute. But if it's not based on what someone else is already doing, or it's not based on one of these deep insights that Zuckerberg happens to be at the right place at the right time on, they will miss the ball. And this just feels like another example where I completely agree with you about Oculus. This thing is going to miss its potential. And I worry VR in general is going to miss hitting its potential because they own it and they're trying to push it into something that it's not. 
Well, not even that. Like, just where's the bit? Like, we talk about alignment. You have to have your business model aligned. You have to have the market aligned, your position in the market, your strengths, your weaknesses. Yeah. But I want to make two quick points. So, number one, what they should do about TikTok. Because you mentioned Instagram. Josh Constein wrote this great article that Mark Zuckerberg doesn't understand TikTok. We'll link it in the show notes. It was excellent. And his point is that one of the reasons why stories work so well on Instagram is in general, Instagram was about documenting your life. And this was just a new way to document your life, a slightly different format, a more consumable format, and sort of easy to add to and the ephemerality made you want to do it more. But the fundamental sort of nature of the app and what you used it for was consistent. And so it was a great place to do it. Whereas TikTok, it's this very sort of performative sort of like you rehearse, you get it together, you do this whole thing. It sort of builds on itself. Like you get these viral ideas sort of going around. And he's like, I don't know how they're going to, in the article, he's like, I'm not sure how they're going to put it in Instagram. No, they should put it in Facebook. In Facebook, the blue app, they're spending all this time on this video tab, this TV tab and getting shows and stuff like that. That's what no one uses Facebook for. It's like, oh, we need video advertising. Let's go pay for shows or pay for news channels. And it's like, what is Facebook? Facebook is a place to go out there and perform for your friends and say, look how great my life is, right? I mean, it's a performative app. That's exactly where they should be watching the response to TikTok, not watching another app, which has never worked for them. It's like they don't understand the fundamental nature of the apps that they have. So yeah, there's my free advice for Facebook about TikTok. But I'm really glad you mentioned that bit about you know Zuckerberg and his belief in himself and his own insights or whatever, because I'm a big believer, and I wrote about this. This was my response, what I wrote about that leak and the transcript that came out. I'm a big believer in that your culture forms from decisions made early in a company's life that turn out correct, right? And for me, the formative story of Facebook is newsfeed. They watched it. Everyone hated it. There was literally protests outside Facebook's offices and they paid it lip service that, oh yeah, sorry, we shouldn't have, you know, sprung that on you, blah, blah, blah. And they changed nothing. They pushed forward, they accelerated. And guess what? It turned out people loved it. They loved it. They could not get enough of it. And it turned out they didn't care about the privacy implications of it at all. And Facebook could just give lip service to people's concerns and skate through. And you see those lessons come up again and again and again. Like Facebook push more engagement. People like it, push it out there. Don't worry about privacy. People don't care. And oh, just skate through the PR problems. And you've seen all that happen with them sort of going forward. What was so interesting though about this is Mark Zuckerberg, and we all know this story, but the way he sort of talked about it in this Q&A, and I recorded the whole thing in the day that day, which we'll put the link to in the show notes, was when Yahoo wanted to buy Facebook. And the context of the question was about Zuckerberg having complete control of the company, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. And obviously he thinks it's a good thing. And he talked about this, how everyone wanted him to sell. The board wanted to sell, his managers wanted to sell, his employees wanted to sell, and he decided not to sell. And people were very mad. People left. You got a lot of pushback for it. Said you're going to regret this. And uh, needless to say, he does not regret not selling to Yahoo. And all those people that were mad at him, all those investors and all those people on his board and all those employees, they're grateful he didn't sell either. And to me, that was Zuckerberg's newsfeed moment. Like newsfeed was a cultural touchstone for Facebook broadly. But for Zuckerberg himself, this decision, it's his touchstone. He stood against everyone else. And he was right. And he was right to an absolutely mammoth degree. And the lesson he seemed to have taken away is that I am always right. And I must always have unfettered 
right to sort of make these decisions. And you know what? That's a great way. That's a great way to make poor strategic decisions. It's a great way to sort of flail around in sort of territory after territory. It's a great way to, yes, your core business is so good and you're so powerful and you are very good execution and you do have good discipline. Like Zuckerberg does have good discipline and the way he has followed a routine thing to grow audience, build out monetization tools in like without rushing into it. Like it's one of his best qualities as an executive, but there are serious, to say the least, questions about judgment. And that judgment is not going to be improved if your core cultural touchstone is that only I am right. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it limits your feedback loop too. Like That's right. This is where the culture is good and bad. One of his great strengths is everyone's aligned. Everyone's pulling in the same direction. Everyone really believes in the mission. The problem is you're not getting good feedback. You're not getting the pushback. You're not getting the arguments. Yes, people will dispute, but what everyone knows at the end of the day that he's going to decide and you're going to fall in line or not, your pushback's not quite what it might be. Yeah. 100%. And like, that's the struggle that they have. And it takes a monstrous outcry in order to change course, like the Cambridge Analytica thing and the outcry that was necessary before that started to sink in. Because initially the response around all that stuff was like the election stuff, like always the initial reaction is kind of dismissive. It's like, I'm not listening. This is crap. Like people just love to criticize. The instinct is not to listen. That being said, I have to say there are moments where I feel sorry for the guy. I feel like I've been Facebook critic number one on this show, and I'm sure I'm not alone, especially more recently. And I can understand how you would struggle to want to take feedback when it feels like you're perpetually a punching bag for lots of people. And the fact that it feels like he doesn't listen frustrates me more. And it probably feeds into this loop where I I and others get more and more frustrated and more and more outspoken. But at the same time, like I struggle to imagine what it must be like to wake up, to be in this position and to just feel like you're being critiqued from all angles, like demonized by so many people about so many things. And I can also see how I, as a defense mechanism, would start to try to filter that out because it must be tough. Well, it's the same situation. It's everyone else is saying one thing. And your formative experience was to resist that and to do what you thought was right. And it turned out fantastically well. And you see, it's absolutely still going on. Like this whole thing about unifying the messaging of all the different networks and this whole end-to-end encryption thing. I'm not sure that everyone on Facebook thinks that's all a good idea, but Zuckerberg does. And that's all that matters. I referenced in the article I wrote, A Curse of Culture, I referenced sort of the conclusion, and I think it's worth sort of reiterating here, which is, you know, the first paragraph, culture is one of a company's most powerful assets right until it isn't. The same underlying assumptions that permit an organization to scale massively constrain the ability of that same organization to change direction. More distressingly, culture prevents organizations from even knowing they need to do so. And it's the blindness, right? You know, I say this all the time. I'll say it right now. Facebook gets treated unfairly by the media. I think by and large, I think the media has it in for Facebook. They blame Facebook for their business model problems. They blame Facebook for all kinds of problems, but that doesn't change the fact that Facebook screwed up all kinds of areas and often in really sort of like not accidental screw ups. Like they purposely like the whole FTC thing, like that fine. They abided by that consent decree for four months and then threw it out the window and did what they wanted to do. Like the hands are not clean here. And to focus on where you feel treated unfairly without admitting that, yeah, actually we have a lot of this coming is not very productive. 
Yeah, and also the whole apologies as a way, not of contrition, but as a way of just like trying to placate people without fundamentally changing things, that also gets people pretty riled up. Yeah, so just the last paragraph then from, oh, and I'll link this article. This was actually about, I was referencing Google and Apple, so the both is referring to them, but it certainly applies here. The rigidity of both is the manifestation of the disease that affects every great company. The assurance that what worked before will work eternally into the future, even if circumstances have changed. What makes companies great is inevitably what makes companies fail whenever that day comes. And I mean, what else is there to say? Facebook when they failed, it's not going to be because of regulations or privacy laws or antitrust. They're going to fail because they're convinced they can do no wrong. And Mark Zuckerberg is convinced that only he knows best. And that is going to be the causal factor of their demise. So I agree with everything you just said. I think you put it very well. At the same time, I watched a Netflix documentary recently on Bill Gates and the parallels between Gates and Zuckerberg are really quite striking sometimes. And Gates talked about one of the biggest dangers for a CEO is getting distracted. And you teed it up at the start of this episode talking about how like it feels like Zuckerberg's taken his eye off the ball. And like even in the context of the transcript that leaked, he's talking about how he's ready to go to the mat in order to fight to protect his company. I wonder whether there's some element of him being distracted by things that aren't necessarily in the market right now. I think it's a great point. And, but I thought the take the go to the mat thing, I mean, Twitter can be dumb. I thought that was unfair. Like, cause he was talking yes. about fighting in court against an antitrust lawsuit, which of course he's going to fight in court against an antitrust lawsuit. Yes, 100%. With that context, I agree. I was more talking about the fact that he is thinking about fighting in court is the point that I guess I'm trying to get across. Well, no, you're right. The whole last three to four years has been one big distraction from the actual core of running Facebook. I think that's a great point. I completely agree. It all makes sense, right? You're getting this sort of toxic mixture of the ground underneath Facebook changing from a market perspective. At the same time, Facebook is in the, you know, the center of a firing squad basically every day, constantly. Again, some of it unfair, but some of their own making. And meanwhile, you have these drum beats of sort of legal actions and, and all this sort of stuff. And you have all these personal attacks on himself. Like, yeah, who went to take their eyes off the ball? And unfortunately, that has particularly in a company that's so CEO centric is going to have major consequences. Anyhow, Facebook, we ran the gamut there, I think. We touched on all parts of it. We, we defended them. We attacked them. We uh, even had a little bit of empathy for them. It was a good revisit. See, this is a good thing where we have a little more time for episodes. We can sort of save everything up and really dump it out all at once. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Well, thank you for tuning in from London. And thanks to our listeners for waiting patiently as we're a little more sporadic these days. But it was good talking to you. And I will talk to you sometime soon. Sounds good, Ben. Have a good one. All right, bye-bye.